the currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Good evening and welcome to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman. Over the next hour, we'll review the current international economic, business and geopolitical issues that impact markets at home and abroad. Coming up on this evening's show, Portugal's exit from the Troika. Will Portugal follow in Ireland's footsteps and go it alone? We'll be joined by the panel. This week, we discuss a new debt forgiveness scheme for Ireland's struggling SMEs. The ECB votes in favour of holding low interest rates, but still holds cards close to their chest over quantitative easing. And is Ireland's insolvency service working? Also on tonight's show, senior risk consultant at Czech Risk, Ross Pepperell, provides our weekly international markets update, including the latest scandal to hit Wall Street. Let's kick things off with the news that a debt forgiveness scheme for small and medium enterprises struggling since the crash is to be considered by a government-appointed high-level working group, according to reports from the Irish Independent this week. If the debt for equity proposal is implemented, it would see banks cancelling some company debts in exchange for shares in a bid to clear a significant blockage in the economy. Now, joining me on the line is business reporter with the Irish Independent, Donal O'Donovan. Uh, a great story to, uh, to to break this week. What is the group looking to achieve? I suppose in terms of a little bit of context, we know that there's a huge, huge, huge amount of SME debt um, uh, that was built up really, uh, by and large, pre-crash. Um, the numbers are very stark. It's about 50 billion altogether, um, and it's owed generally by fairly small firms. Uh, so for the last three years in particular, we've had a big push from government um, uh, a big push from the banks, a big push from the regulator to try and tackle this question of legacy debt. What's happening this year and, and what's, well, why this group is being set up, even if there's credit available now, companies aren't really in a position to borrow uh, because their balance sheets are in bad shape because they don't have equity. Um, and it's, it's kind of a new a new phase in, in, in the problem, if you like. We've identified the overhang of legacy debt. We've identified the lack of supply of, of, of debt. What we're, what we're finding now is that the balance sheets of companies that survived the crash are actually in very bad shape. And so, in order for those companies to borrow, that, that that needs to be addressed. And so effectively, they've got to get rid of the, the old wood before they can start on the new. But um, when is this, this high-level group going to start examining uh, debt forgiveness options for MSCs? Is, is this something that's imminent? It, it, it's imminent, but it, 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 it's imminent in the sense that the group is being set up. So even the, 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 the constituents of, of what will be this group haven't been decided yet. That's, that's work that's actively taking place right now. Um, it's likely to include um, representatives of government agencies, representatives of the banks, and representatives of the representative bodies for, for businesses. And are you aware of what sort of options they might be, uh, might be willing to, to consider, or is everything on the table at the moment? I think everything's on the table. Everything is on the table to be considered. Now, I think there's going to be a big tug once that group gets started between, for example, business groups and the banks, um, who will have very different views on how to clean up uh, the balance sheets of companies. The government, government departments, government agencies, which aren't necessarily on the same page because some, some government agencies are all about championing small business. Some government agencies are very much tied to, to, to the banks and to the, to the exchequer. Um, they're not going to want to see a cost to the exchequer. Nobody really is going to want the cost of this to fall on them. And what's going to happen at this group is that that Hustle has to happen. Really, that debate about where does the cost of of, of, of this fall it, that has to be has to be smashed out. Really, it's clearly a massive blockage in the economy, and I think it has to be cleared. One of the problems I see, though, is that for a bank to take equity 
of a, an SME requires a, additional capital. It's a much higher risk-weighted asset compared to a government bond, for example. So do you think the government is willing to foot that bill as well, or will that be for the open market? I think I don't think the government is going to want to foot that bill. Um, and, and those kind of considerations are exactly the considerations that the banks are going to come back with and say, look, fine, you want us to, to, to forgive this debt, but what do you want us to do then? You know, how do you want us to go about getting through the stress test? Uh, for example, when we, we, we need to have our capital in very good order at the end of this year for the, for the European stress test. If we're going around, you know, chipping away at our capital over the next six months or, or, or nine months, that, 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 that's not really going to work. Um, so, so, I mean, you're absolutely right that that's going to be a, pro- a problem that, that, that has to be thrashed out. Well, I think it's a, it's a fantastic story to have broken. I think the uh, it goes right to the core of the problem of Irish economic expansion in that the debt overhang has to be dealt with, uh, otherwise uh, things will be blocked going forward. Thank you very much for joining me. That was Donal O'Donovan, business reporter with the Irish Independent. Thank you again. Now, here with me in the studio is our panel. Dr. Thomas Conlon is a lecturer in banking and finance in the UCD School of Business and economist Jim Power. We'll be discussing the latest statistics from Ireland's insolvency service, including numbers on mortgage restructuring, bankruptcies and unsecured debt forgiveness. Also, we'll look at the ECB vote, which was in favour of holding interest rates at a record low, but isn't ruling out quantitative easing. First, SME debt deals. Following on from Donald's report, um, do you think the banks are actually going to accept this or, or is this proposal doomed from the outset? Well, I suppose from my perspective, uh, this time last year, Fiona Muldoon and the Central Bank you know, highlighted the debt issue in the SME sector. You know, She said at that stage that close to 50% of SME loans were non-performing. And one of the big problems with SME lending is that a lot of it is property related. You know, SMEs, many owners... Uh, invested in property either for the business or as investments during the boom and that's obviously gone badly south so there's a serious problem there that needs to be addressed but the notion that banks would step in and take a stake in SMEs um, in that sort of situation seems fanciful to me Um, I think the banks would be incredibly unwilling to take that step because they end up with equity in businesses that are already in serious difficulty Um, and even with debt write down um, in return for an equity stake I still don't see it as a viable business model for the banking sector particularly given the problems that banks already have on their balance sheets. So to be clear what what we're saying is that the the blockage at the moment is that these SMEs are holding bad debts on, on their books. Those need to be cleared for new loans to be created. But the banks themselves are unable to move because um, to take on this the, this asset would be an increase in their risk weightings, require more capital, and therefore they're not going to do anything. Uh, Tom, is that, is exactly. that how you know, you'd view There's it? a bank solvency issue here. You know, if banks were to realise losses on these loans, they're going to have to take write-downs. And in order to try and... Uh, recover these right downs, we're going to have to have more capital. So they could be coming back post the uh, ECB stress test later this year looking for more cash. So is that really what we want to try and realise as well? It's probably worth pointing out, though, this is something that has been adopted elsewhere. Yeah. The US, it's been uh, historically very um, a regular occurrence, but the UK, RBS, have set up a strategic investment unit which works with, fir- with firms and uh, it has stakes at the moment in 350 different firms, total of £4 billion uh, 
of stakes in these firms. You see, the, the bulk of SMEs in the United Kingdom and the United States are big companies by Irish standards. I mean, the typical SME in this country probably employs less than 10 people. And it's a lot of those businesses that are in serious financial difficulty. So I'm not sure you can actually apply what the banks did in the UK and the United States um, and transfer it over here to Ireland because the nature of the SME sector is much, much different. I think that, you know, we've, we've talked on previous shows about zombie banks and, and the problems the Japanese had and the, the, the danger that you have uh, here of, of, of creating a similar situation. Would it be possible for the government to come up with a sort of a national loan corporation or, or to take over some of that role itself? Do you think it's willing to? It's a possibility, but it's, it's again, going to be a difficult, difficult thing. You know, first of all, trying to find the funding. Do you go and talk to the National Pension Reserve Fund to try and get whatever might be left in that? We've been pretty much, <laughs> it's already been raided. We, we've yeah. been raided that quite a few times to date. Um, my sense on it is that it's going to be very difficult. Any way they're going to try and find uh, spare cash, it's going to be taken up somewhere else. So it's, it's a necessity, but it's going to be very, very awkward. Now, what, one of the main uh, small and medium enterprise sectors that's currently struggling with finding credit source is uh, is the construction industry. There were uh, discussions today that the Strategic Investment Fund, which again is a, a newly proposed fund, might be a, a source of funding for um, housing, uh, for building of new houses. I think there's a shortfall of some 16,000 new houses in Ireland per year until 2018. It, again, is that realistic or, or would, would Ireland be better off going and doing a funding for lending scheme as they've done in the UK? Well, the, the, the National Housing Agency um, over the past week has highlighted that Ireland's housing requirement over the next five years is about 80,000 80, additional houses with almost 50% of those in the Dublin area. And, you know, within the inner city Dublin, for example, at the moment, there's 62 hectares of sites on which planning has been granted, but which remain undeveloped. Um, Okay, and suggestions have been made for a penal levy on those vacant sites um, in order to try and get them onto market and get them developed. But even if you do that, one of the problems is that for those people who either own the land or if they want to pass it on to developers to have it developed, developers are finding it incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to access credit at the moment. So it's a little bit, well, it's more than a little bit, it is a chicken and egg situation. So what we've got to do, if you accept that there is a requirement now for a lot of construction activity here over the next five years, particularly in residential housing, but also on the commercial building front, you do need to create access to funding for those. So, for example, would NAM have a role to play there? I think it possibly could, you know, providing the finance to developers to develop the sites. Um, but it, it has to happen because the, the model is totally broken at the moment. And so to be clear, what you're saying is it, it can't just be a sort of demand-driven funding for lending scheme to potential uh, mortgagees. It's got to be a supply-driven side funding as well. It has to be supply-driven as well, absolutely. Okay, okay. we'll leave uh, SME lending there and take a short break, but coming up, our panel will discuss ECB announcements during the week, and we'll ask, is Ireland's insolvency scheme working? Stay tuned. The Currency with Nick Bullman, brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services, protecting your profits for 30 years. 
Welcome back to The Currency with me, Nick Pullman. Don't forget to get in touch with your points of view. Email thecurrency at newstalk.ie or tweet us at thecurrencynt. Now, before the break, our panellists, lecturer in banking and finance in the UCD School of Business, Dr. Tom Conlon, and economist Jim Power were discussing new revelations that a debt forgiveness scheme for SMEs could be in the works. But now moving on to Ireland's insolvency issues, where casework figures published by the Insolvency Service of Ireland this week reveal a significant rise in bankruptcies. 51 unsecured debt write-offs averaging at 77% and a total of only 4 out of 320 mortgage debt restructurings completed. The state body was established last year with the remit to help secure restructuring deals for those in arrears. They currently have over 500 cases on their books, the bulk of which are mortgage cases worth over 300 million euro. Given that so few have been dealt with, it's legitimate to ask, is the service failing? My sense on it is that we're definitely having some issues. We've had a total of 193 million across all of the different schemes that are introduced that have been effectively uh, negotiated. You mean 193 million euros? 193 million euros. Now, if we put this in perspective, we have, according to the Central Bank, at the end of 2013, we had 24.4 billion worth of mortgages that are in arrears over 90 days. That's about 24% of all mortgages. So we're really talking a tiny fraction, about less than 1% of all mortgages in arrears. And this is just mortgages. These um, insolvency methodologies are for more than just mortgages. So it seems to me that there's something missing, something isn't really working here. Now, there were, there were I think, 66 bankruptcy cases uh, reported for the first quarter of, uh, of this year, and that's more than the number for all of last year. Uh, in some media reports, that was seen as a, a dramatic figure. Uh, you know, my view is actually that's pretty small. It's a, it's a tiny number. You know, since uh, late last year when the uh, adjudication, the kind of term associated with bankruptcy or insolvency went from 12 to 3 years, we've had 76 bankruptcies in total, 66 this year, Q1. If we were to put that into perspective, in the UK, uh, particularly in, UK, in England and Wales, they had 101,000 individual uh, insolvencies during 2013. If we were to do similar numbers for Ireland, we're talking something like 1 in 11,000 adults. Seems very small. So it's a tiny number, yeah. It's and tiny. I think it, it's interesting because the, the, the Joint uh, Eructus Committee on Finance and Public Expenditure and Reform also this week heard that the last six months of, of 2013, over 3,300 uh, 3, new proceedings were, were brought to enforce rulings uh, on principal dwellings, um, which uh, I, I have a quote here saying it was a ramping up of reposition activity. Now, um, is the insolvency service actually up against a brick wall? The, the, the banks aren't going to do it because of the position they've already got to with, with debt write-downs. There's kind of two sides to it. You know, we have technical impediments here, but we also have um, kind of cultural impediments within Ireland. We historically have been kind of anti-bankruptcy. This is something that doesn't apply worldwide. The US, if you haven't been bankrupt, then you're probably never going to be successful. That's generally the way it's looked at. Mm -hmm. And this is something that you can learn from. By being through bankruptcy, you can learn how to run a business better. So if it's the case that we're really, truly trying to support entrepreneurship in Ireland, it's something that we need to think deeply about. Perhaps we need to follow the UK model and move down to one-year bankruptcy that people can actually get out and get started again. Yeah, I, I sense that the the bankruptcy rules here in Ireland are extremely penal, given given what's going on in the rest of the world. And if you you want to have an entrepreneurial class, you need to you, you, you need to attack that problem right from the start. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, the bankruptcy procedure here 
basically takes you out of the equation for a long, long time. It is deemed a major badge of failure um, and it's a black mark on you for the rest of your life in terms of anything you try to do. So we need, we do need, I totally agree with Tom, we do need to change that culture because, um, you know, obviously in the best of times, business startups will fail. You know, there's a high failure rate and that's fine. That's a natural part of um, the business cycle. But when you get the sort of economic crisis and crash we've seen over the last six or seven years, obviously a lot more businesses are going to go out. Um, but these, the last five or six years have been pretty exceptional. We would hope, you know, it's not something that will be repeated uh, once a decade or whatever in, into the future. But what we should learn from this is that businesses will fail and that should not prevent people from getting back into business as quickly as possible again. So I definitely think we need to go the UK route where you're out of the picture for 12 months and then you can start again. And we do talk a lot in this country. We pay a lot of lip service to create an entrepreneurial culture, um, the best small country in the world in which to do business and, and so on. But to do that, you certainly need um, an insolvency structure and a bankruptcy system that you know facilitates and encourages that we do not have it at the moment good okay well look, we're going to move on uh, now just to keep uh, within time this week the president of the european central bank mario draghi stated that the ecb is going to hold rates at a record low of uh, 0.25 percent and uh, would not rule out the option of further monetary policy easing if the current inflationary trend continues now let's face it currently european markets are pretty much stuck in a rut there's no movement uh, according to draghi they're planning. Is the ECB resting on its laurels, um, hoping that the markets are just going to come back, the economy is just going to pick up, inflation will be all right? Uh, because it doesn't seem to me that they're going to be able to meet their 2% inflation target uh, with the current policy. Uh, one of the key uh, drivers of the whole European scene over the last 18 months has been the comment made by Draghi that he would do and the ECB would do whatever it takes to get the Eurozone economy back on track. Um, and I still think that is the framework that is applying. But as is the case with every decision at a European level, trying to get every member around that table to agree on a strategy is very, very difficult because the Germans particularly would have a certain perspective on the world. But if you look at the facts, they are stark, they are quite frightening. You know, the, the ECB has an inflation target of 2%. At the moment, headline inflation is running at 0.5% and still declining. Um, core inflation, which strips out volatile stuff like alcohol, energy, food prices, it is currently running at 0.8%. And if you look at the deflationary forces at play in Europe, massive spare capacity and unemployment rate of 11.9% of the labour force, that's almost 20 million people unemployed in the euro area. So that's massive spare capacity, which is deflationary. If you look at the fiscal backdrop, um, a lot of countries, including Ireland, obviously for the last three or four years have been caught in this massive fiscal consolidation process. And even if you look at Spain, which is a particularly difficult situation at the moment, um, it was even repeated last week, you know, that the Spanish budget deficit this year is going to be over 6% of GDP. They need to get under 3% by 2015, 2016. So, and a lot of other countries are in the same situation. So fiscal policy is totally pro-cyclical at the moment. If you look at the banking sector in Europe, um, Draghi admitted it in his press conference on Thursday that credit is a big issue in the euro area still. So there's not enough credit flowing into the system. So there's a whole range of forces which are acting in a downward 
way on economic activity, creating this deflationary environment. Um, what have they tried to date? They've taken the official interest rate down to a quarter of 1%. They've engaged in outright monetary transactions, which is a very limited form of quantitative easing. Um, but clearly, what they're ultimately going to have to do here is follow the US path and introduce outright quantitative easing money supply. Um, and there is a softening of stance going on. You know, the Bundesbank president indicated a couple of weeks ago that uh, he'd be less opposed to it now than he was. In, yeah, in, in, five in minutes. Exactly, yeah. Indeed. So perhaps things are changing, but it has to happen. If it doesn't, if we have another two years of this sort of policy paralysis, we're going to end up like Japan. Well, I, I think that's the big concern is that we end up in a Japan-style deflationary trap. And, and the question is, um, you know, what, what they can do now to actually get things going. There has been mooted that they might go to, the ECB might go to negative real interest rates to stop banks depositing with the ECB. Tom, do you think that's a, a realistic proposal or are they likely to make asset purchases of well, some kind? It is something that has been implemented before. Sweden did something like this in 2009 where they actually went to negative interest rates of 0.25. So Effectively, if you uh, put €100 Euro into a bank, at the end of the year, you're going to come back with less money. And it's something that's going to help to drive consumers to spend their cash rather than keeping it in a bank. So there is, I think, um, certainly precedence for them doing something like this. Um, they're very much this week trying to um, broach the subject of bringing these deposits below zero. So it's certainly a possibility, but it's going to be difficult for them to try and keep everybody happy in doing something like this. As you were saying, it's, you know, across the, the table there's going to be plenty of people who are going to disagree with negative interest rates because of what it but says. The, the block at the moment seems to be Germany not accepting an inflation rate over 2%, but, but that means that everyone else, because you're looking at a differential between German inflation and the rest of Europe, uh, is importing deflation from Germany. So uh, my concern there would be that, that Spain suddenly metastasizes into the rest of Europe going into a deflationary spiral. And, and once you're in them, you can't get out of them. And Japan lasted 20 years. It's still trying to struggle to get out. Yeah, it's, it's much easier to tackle an inflation problem than a deflation problem um, because once um, a deflationary psychology becomes embedded in the psyche of an economy, um, it is incredibly difficult to actually arrest that. And that is the direction that the Eurozone is now going in. Um, the German perspective on this, I think, is going to have to change because, you know, at the end of the day, the economy that accounts for 30% of the euro area, if it is exporting deflation into the rest of the zone, um, it's going to destroy the whole edifice. Because if, if you look at the facts on the ground, you know, people who, t who argue about inflation at this juncture are dinosaurs. The real issues, lack of growth, high unemployment, um, excessive levels of government debt and the associated fiscal consolidation process. Um, it's a recipe for disaster. And it, it's high time that we started to focus on growth because if we don't, um, we're just basically sowing the seeds for the destruction of the euro area eventually. Now, now, Jim, you, you sound a little bit like the IMF uh, there. And uh, uh, Mario Draghi uh, had his feathers really ruffled uh, by the IMF calls for more action from the ECB to combat falling inflation. So let's just take a listen to what he said. I think the, the IMF has been of recent extremely generous of, uh, in its uh, suggestions on what we should do or not do. And uh, we're really thankful for that. Um, the... But the, you know, the viewpoints uh, of the Governing Council are, 
in a sense, different. And I, frankly, I, I would like to uh, the IMF to be as generous as they have been towards us, with, all, with also also with other po monetary policy jurisdictions, uh, like, for example, issuing statements just the day before an FOMC meeting would take place. Uh, anyway. I think we will certainly value the advice of the IMF and uh, certainly is an important contribution to our analysis. So I think we can all see there that he was uh, he, he's extremely frustrated at the, the sort of reaction the IMF were giving him and the guidance they're giving him. Do you think the IMF is correct to be, to be giving that guidance at the moment? Is, there, is it their position and uh, is he right to, to, to put it in those terms? Um, in, in my view, um, what, what you're, the, the, the reaction we saw there from Draghi, he's obviously upset. Um, it's because the European Central Bank values its independence above all else. But I think the IMF perspective on this is correct. You know, the Europeans have got to get their act together. You know, one of the big economic blocks in the global economy um, is failing economically at the moment and has been for some time. And if the correct measures are not taken now, um, we could have a long term, a couple of lost decades in the euro area, which from a global economy perspective would be absolutely disastrous. So I think the IMF is correct here. Um, but the more pressure you put on the ECB to do something, the less reaction you're likely to get in a positive sense. Uh, and Tom, I, I suspect part of the problem is the, the sort of relationship that European banks have with their sovereign host nations, the sovereign debt nexus, as it's called. Have, have you considered at all in, in your, your banking work how serious that problem might be? Well, I suppose the, the issue is that you have effectively banks using cash that they're getting cheaply to invest in sovereign debt. And with this kind of problem, what happens if these yields start to change again? Suddenly the, the yields on government debt goes out. Suddenly our banks are in trouble again. So this again leads to more kind of solvency problems. So we're kind of a downward spiral. Yeah, I think there's a big risk that actually as you see US rates start to rise, that actually um, global rates start to rise and that just exacerbates the problem. Yeah, because it, it does indeed. And um, the, the, the impact on exchange rates is also really interesting at the moment. I mean, I mentioned earlier the deflationary forces. The other one, of course, is the fact that the euro has been appreciating quite significantly in value over the last couple of years, but particularly over the last couple of months, because there's a lot of money flowing out of Russia um, and the Ukraine into the euro area as a sort of a safe haven. So when the European economy is on its knees with all of these problems, a deflationary spiral, the exchange rate is appreciating in value. That's just going to exacerbate the situation. And I'm not sure um, a rising interest rate cycle in the United States will actually arrest that um, exchange rate trend, because I think there's a very clear explicit view in the United, United States at the moment that a weak dollar is in the best interest of the US economy. So on, on all fronts, um, Europe is caught in a real bind at the moment. We'll have to come back to currency war sometime down the line, uh, which is where we were going with that. But unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Uh, thanks to our panellist, Dr. Thomas Conlon, lecturer in banking and finance in the UCD School of Business and uh, economist Jim Power. Coming up, we'll consider Portugal's exit from the Troika. Stay tuned. Conditions. The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman. You can tweet us with your comments at The Currency NT or email thecurrency at newstalk.ie. On May 17th, Portugal will leave its 78 
billion euro rescue programme and return to open markets. In December, Ireland, as we all know, became the first nation to exit the bailout programme and now Portugal must decide whether to follow in Ireland's footsteps and go it alone or take a more precautionary credit line route. Joining me on the line is Dean and Professor of Finance from the School of Economics and Management, Lisbon, Dr. Joao Duque. Uh, Joao, considering the risks involved in an exit without a standby line of credit, is Portugal likely to follow Ireland's footsteps? Well, this is a very strong possibility. Um, Firstly, because there is, I think, a political commitment of the the actual government that wants to make a very good impression. Uh, Firstly, because uh, new elections are approaching, uh, not only for the European Parliament, but also for the national parliament, and this means that the political mindset will be strongly in favor of this uh, clean exit, I'd say. Um, uh, Secondly, because we have fundamentals and also a very interesting cash pile, I'd say, um, in the government hands uh, that will allow us uh, to do not need significant help from the markets for the this coming months. So given this, it's a very strong possibility that at least for the first, I'd say, half an year, Portugal will keep uh, trying to be alone and independent on, in the market. But this is a political, I'd say, decision. But it's, also, but it's also obviously influenced by, by the bond markets themselves. And whilst I understand there is a reserve cash pile that's been built up uh, over the last few years, countries, the, the, the Portuguese uh, 10-year bond yields are currently at about 3.89%, which is about uh, 37 or 40 basis points higher than Ireland at the same time of the exit. And then un- unlike Ireland, I think um, Portugal's debt is considered non-investment grade by all three ratings agents at the moment. So uh, do you think that's a, a wise decision or just a political movement? I would not support this uh, straight exit. <clears throat> uh, on top of that, I, I, I would suggest that the government should um, very seriously and uh, fastly strike negotiations to uh, get involved in a, a, another possibility, which is a cautionary program or a credit line or we don't know, <clears throat> but any mechanism that would help us or guarantee that in order to need uh, the market's funding, we would have it without uh, any excitation. So this is very important. And uh, as soon as we can discuss the lines of the compromise uh, with no treasury pressure, as soon as we get a better uh, result from this negotiation. So, but this is a political decision, and I'm a bit afraid that the Portuguese government will decide mainly based on political aspects of the decision and not on uh, based on the financial arguments. Now, the Irish underwent three years of uh, Troika program. Uh, what was what was the situation in Portugal? What was the program like? What were the measures endured by the Portuguese over the past three years? Well, the main the main. 
changes are uh, the deficit or is the deficit, uh, which is more now in line with the uh, capabilities of the country. Um, we are uh, reducing strongly the, the deficit, and uh, we hope that uh, within one, month, one year we'll get into the 3% of GDP in line. So this is the main important change. Given that, there were two uh, lines of operation. The first one was uh, reducing uh, reduction of the costs or the, the, the public expenses, but uh, we also noticed and mainly an increase in taxes. And this increase in taxes, well, gave us a very strong feeling of something is different now. Uh, domestic consumption was reduced, and um, uh, in terms of political, I would say, agenda, the main question now is the reshaping of public administration. But some uh, foreign investment is starting in Portugal, and that's the main reason why I think employment is now increasing very, very small amount, but anyway, it's starting to increase. And all the fundamentals are getting some improvement. I'd say employment, the GDP now is forecasted to be positive. Exportations have, have behaved very, very uh, well. I'd say that these are the main fundamentals. Uh, we, of course, there, is some, uh, there are some uh, dangers or as inflation, for instance. But inflation is in the European Central Bank hands, and I think they will control that. And, Joe, looking at uh, youth unemployment in, uh, in Portugal and general unemployment levels, um, one might have expected to see a faster recovery, a more V-shaped recovery from, from a country that had such a, a deep recession. Um, do you think that the, the, the current budgets, the, the, the fact that you have a 129% of debt to GDP falling to about 126 means that uh, Portugal is, is caught in a, in a trap with Europe looking as if it's moving towards deflation? Well, that's a possibility, uh, but I hope not, <laughs> sincerely. Um, the, uh, although the government uh, and the budget is not dedicated to investment, so now all the budget is ma- mainly um, dedicated to paying current expenses and uh, interests. That's all. And the amount, the bill for interest is huge. The Portuguese are always complaining about it because they feel that they're paying tax only to pay interest. And um, I hope that uh, this uh, absence of investment, public investment, will not kill the country. So what we need is private investment. And I think the government is now doing the, all the best efforts to attract um, foreign investment that can be done or based on other uh, financial center, centers where inter- yields or interest rates are uh, lower for those foreigners that want to invest in Portugal. So they do not suffer the, the, the local uh, risk uh, for as Portuguese uh, institutions because they are not Portuguese institutions and they can profit from the location and the environment and all the facilities that they may get from being in this side of uh, the peninsula. So, yes, there is a strong possibility of getting caught in this uh, trap, but I feel that the fundamentals don't uh, tell us that. Joe, 
thank you very much for joining us and uh, highlighting the risks for Portugal as it exits its its, uh, Troika programme. That was Joao Duque, uh, Dean and Professor of Finance, Lisbon School of Economics and Management. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye. Coming up after the break, high-frequency trading. Is this the next Wall Street scandal? Stay tuned. The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency. Now it's time for our international markets coverage, brought to us this week by senior risk consultant at Czech Risk, Ross Pepperell. The U.S. stock market closed down 1.25% on Friday with particularly heavy selling of stocks that have outperformed over the past year. What do you think, Ross? Is this the start of a bigger correction? I think the markets have obviously done uh, quite well over, you know, since the beginning of the year, and it, but especially those parts of the market which um, have been so-called, you know, momentum stocks um, or areas of the market such as technology. And I think what you've seen is just a realization that, you know, the, the landscape is not as favorable as it was. So people, I think, are just taking some chips off the table um, against the backdrop of, you know, potentially weaker growth and not so positive comments coming from the central bankers. Do you think tapering is really uh, starting to bite then? I mean, uh, we, we had Janet Yellen coming out a week ago or a week, week and a so ago saying that uh, the, the Fed would finish tapering by, by August and then interest rates would rise. Is that, is that what people are really thinking about? What, what's changed? Um, I think in all likelihood, I mean, I think she will carry on with um, her plan, although, you know, there have been um, some more conciliatory uh, noises coming out of recent. But um, I, I don't think that really the, the full impact of bond tapering has been felt yet. So although we've seen... Um, periods which have affected emerging markets quite severely, um, you know, ultimately the, 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 the real effects haven't been felt yet. So, you know, perhaps um, by the end of the year or going into next year, you know, the cost of capital for for a lot of the rest of the world is going to be much more expensive. And so, you know, those countries which are reliant on the U.S. dollar are going to feel the pinch. So for emerging markets or those which were more exposed, you know, ultimately it's going to push them into recession. So I think they're going to find it quite difficult to, uh, you know, to make any progress. So, you know, over the you know, over the forthcoming months, I think, you know, we may well see quite strong rallies here and there, but ultimately, you know, the direction is one way. Look, moving on to Asia, the, the, the market's been doing a bit better in the last, uh, last uh, five or six days. Um, can you bring us up to speed with what, what's going on and why investors are taking a slightly more positive view of China? Well, I, you know, the situation in China has been, um, the, the backdrop is that, um, you know, they're trying to transition um, from uh, an economic model which is more consumption-focused um, and, you know, away from the traditional export-led model. Um, at the same time, they're trying to deal with a banking problem. Um, essentially, they've replicated the U.S. subprime bubble in five years. So they've got a massive juggling act to do, really. Um, and so the, you know, the, the, the game they're trying to play is to try to wean, 
you know, uh, the economy off credit uh, whilst trying to rebalance. So they're basically just trying to do it in gradual, gradual stages to sort of slow the economy down, um, but still keep some growth, quality growth going. The final question I wanted to ask you is that um, I, I was in New York this week and gripping Wall Street is Michael Lewis's book Flash Boys, which uh, alleges that high frequency traders or so-called high frequency traders are actually front running client orders. Now, can, can you actually outline in, in simple terms what, uh, what the issues are? Sure. I think the, the big surprise of this is the fact that anyone finds it a big surprise. <laughs> um, the issue really is that, um, you know, a lot of the more sophisticated hedge funds and investment banks, what they do is they plonk themselves next to the stock exchange. So the way that traders like to work is that, you know, they, if they're looking to buy a stock, they get quotes up on a screen. So the way this the high-frequency trading um, problem is working, essentially, once um, you know the trader looks is looking for a quote, what happens is that the um, the algorithm, um, or let's say the investment bank or hedge fund, they run to the exchange and they're able to get the actual buy the stock and then return it to uh, to the trader at a slightly inflated price. So really what they're doing is skimming pennies at every single transaction. Um, so in other words, they're kind of, um, you know, they're, they're making money for doing nothing. So the way they get away with it, obviously, they spend large amounts of money on getting the most sophisticated and the fastest technology possible. Um, and they're also, you know, they push the prices in one direction or another. So uh, let's say um, um, a trader doesn't want to lose a certain percentage on a position. They'll know where those points are and they will push them just over the limit. So it causes a buy or sell. Now, and, and, so now, can... and on that point, I mean, uh, uh, the, the, there is an FBI investigation, I believe, that started that said that, uh, that they're looking into the possibility of insider trading. Now, insider trading is normally about uh, having sort of insider information information on on a stock but can that be applied to price if you know what the price should be or price is just before you deal isn't that uh, insider trading as well I think, you know, investors should be right, right to, to worry about this. You know, a market should be a place where if you're looking for a price, that's the price you get. It shouldn't be a question of the richest, most sophisticated investors get one price and everyone else gets another. Um, so I think there does need to be, um, you know, uh, some investigation into this and some resolution in favor of a more equitable playing field. You know, I don't think it should be a given right that, uh, you know, certain market participants should get uh, one price compared to others. Well, I think I think that's a really important point. I mean, really what you're saying is that there's potentially a two-tier market, the, the, the haves and the have-nots, as it were, in terms of uh, the speed and ability to move. And that's, um, you know, that's significant. It is. I think the other, the other feature is, um, you know, the people in, in high-frequency trading will say, well, we supply liquidity to the market. Um, but largely, this is illusory. So let's say that a lot of the volume you see on the market, so all the transactions, the flurry that there is, you know, when it actually comes to wanting to actually do anything, it all completely vanishes. So I think that argument is largely spurious, but it's not, it's not to say that it's completely without merit, but, um, you know, largely a lot of those, uh, a lot of those quotes are just completely illusory. The, 
high-frequency traders have come out en masse to defend their business. Um, is it really a billion-dollar business? Is it something that's going to potentially really damage Wall Street if, uh, if it's banned? Well, in, in the short term, it's going to dent certain people's profits. In my mind, I think, you know, markets should be there to provide capital to real businesses, so people actually invest for the future. It shouldn't really be about speculating on, you know, very, very, you know, millisecond transactions which are mathematically and algorithmically driven. Um, so that would be, you know, my personal view. Um, I think you have to take the longer-term picture, and if there's some pain to go around, then, you know, let people take it. And I'm sure people will look for ways to make money in other ways, which could perhaps be more productive. That was Ross Pepperell, Senior Risk Analyst with Czech Risk, with a market roundup and some very interesting commentary on high-frequency trading. I'm sure we'll hear more about that in the future. Well, that's it from me this week. My thanks to all of those who contributed to the show, and particularly to producer Aoife Gillivan. Join me next Sunday at 6pm for the latest instalment of economic and business news at home and abroad. Until then, from me, Nick Bullman, farewell and take care. The Currency with Nick Bullman, brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services, protecting your profits for 30 years.